ました。Good morning. Hello, man. Talkative group here. You guys all find your seats. We have a lot to go through this morning. Uh, so let's get to it. We're sort of entering into like a few weeks of sermons that I've been dreading for two and a half years since we started Matthew. So this is great, right? This has been like the, the next few weeks we're dealing with. The end times, we're going to be in Matthew 24 and 25, and honestly, since the day we started Matthew, people were like, I can't wait till we get to Matthew 24 and 25. I'm like, gosh, dang it. Like, I'm not looking forward to that day. So today's either the day that you figure out you believe what I do and you stay here, or you don't and you leave. I mean, that's just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so uh, I also wanted to say Last week I talked about Reese's peanut butter cups and I've never used an analogy that got me more candy in my whole life. So I'm gonna throw something into every sermon every week and see if it comes to fruition. So we're gonna talk about BMWs this morning. <laughs> so Matthew 24, let me pray and then uh, let's, let's get started in this. Jesus. We thank you for this morning. I thank you for the joy in this room, God, the, the joy that exists when your, uh, your believers come together. Lord, I just thank you for this church. God, I thank you for even passages like this that we get to dig into, and though we don't know all the answers and we don't have it all figured out, God, I'm so thankful that in the end, Lord, you're coming back for us. And uh, Jesus, I just pray this morning that your hand be upon the next few weeks as we dig into some difficult stuff. I pray, God, that you be the one to sort of prepare the hearts of your people to hear the word and um, to respond to it, God. And I just am asking, Lord, that even as we talk through the end of days over the next few weeks, God, I'm asking that there's just a fire that would be ignited in your church, God. And uh, I pray today, Jesus, that all the junk from our week, Lord, maybe even from this morning, the things that have sort of set us back and have bound people's hearts. I pray you'd loose it this morning in Jesus' name, that they'd be free, and God, that we, um, in this place this morning, would be able to tune our ears, our hearts, to your voice, Jesus, as you speak to us, in Jesus' name, amen. So this week was an interesting week leading up to um, the, this passage, for preaching this message, and if you guys have read through Matthew 24 and 25, you know it's not, a real it's not a real easy couple of chapters to make sense of and to understand. Um, but we're going to be talking about the end times, or the last things, uh, what, what we would call eschatology, uh, the, the study of the last things of the end. And I thought it was kind of funny, ironic, that two weeks ago I had this anxiety attack one night, right, that I kind of mentioned a couple weeks ago. Um, and it was like in preparation leading to this message. And this morning, I'm just like, I'm nervous. I'm nervous because people fall all over the map with regards to these issues. And it has divided the church for hundreds of years. And, and yet, uh, my prayer is that as we dig into this this morning, though I might present a perspective 
Um, by no means do I consider my perspective the way, and there's people that are much more studied and smarter than I that have landed in different areas uh, with regards to this passage. But when you talk about the end of days, the end times, it stirs up a ton of emotion in people. It stirs up a ton of things in our heart. And even though it's difficult, I think many people are, are fascinated by it because we all want to know the future, right? All of us want to know what's next. We all want to know when does COVID end? We all want to know is when does the war in Ukraine end? We all want to know when to buy stocks and, and when to sell and what the future holds. We all want to know who's going to win our March Madness bracket, right? We all want to know the future stuff. We, we want to know more about the future. We want to know how the end actually shakes down. But what is it that God actually says about this? And so we're looking at an interesting passage this morning, followed by a few sermons the next uh, couple weeks, that will continue to follow this theme of the end of days. And honestly, I just want to vocalize that, that um, this stuff is difficult to wade through. It really is. And there's been a wide, just a plethora of diverse opinions with regards to how we should understand eschatology and how to make sense of Matthew chapter 24. But within, even in, in the study of the end times, like within eschatology, you then even have more streams of thought which, within that, right? You've got like premillennialism and postmillennialism and amillennialism. If that's not complicated enough for us, you also have pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib. Like where do you fall in all these continuums with regards to end times? And so I'm going to preface this message today by saying that, that something that's been debated for 2,000 years is not going to be solved in a few sermons that you get from me over the next few weeks. Um, but I also want to say that I might present a perspective this morning, but again, like I'm not dogmatic about that, and I don't claim that this is the way. I just want us to look at the passage without doing a bunch of scriptural gymnastics and going, it's really interesting to take the word for the word. It's really interesting to take a passage like this and realize what is the context that the disciples whom Jesus is sharing this with had as Jesus is sharing it? Because you and I have a perspective. And like it or not, our context has been framed by the book of Revelation, which the disciples did not have. Um, they had the Old Testament, they had the books of Daniel and Ezekiel and some of the future telling books that, that could have framed some of their thoughts. But for you and I, our perspective has been shaped by churches throughout our life, pastors that have said things, podcasts, sermons we've listened to. Uh, it's been shaped by movies that we watch and books that we've read. And I was just, we were with the Hillikers for lunch the other day, and I was like, it's so hard to get that junk out of your mind because it's sort of like it has established a way in our brains based off of what we've seen and what we've heard, and not all of it is scripturally sound. And so this morning, as we get into Matthew 24, I really just want to take the word as it is and just follow suit with the words of Jesus and what it is that he's saying to his disciples. So a little context for you guys before we start this morning. I want to show you guys two pictures. Hopefully you can see them well enough. The first picture um, is a view of the temple, the temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. Uh, other picture. Sorry. It's kind of hard to see. Can, can you turn those lights off? Thank you. Um, so... This picture was taken by yours truly. Um, <laughs> it's a fabulous picture. If anybody wants it, I'm selling it for 50 bucks. You can hang it in your house. Um, so this is a look looking west from the Mount of Olives towards 
Jerusalem. And so you can see what's interesting about this. We don't have time to get into it all, but you've got all these Jewish tombstones here on the side of the Mount of Olives. And then you go up to the east side, the east wall of the city, and you see all those tombs along there. Those are all tombs of Muslims. Uh, basically believing that when they get resurrected from the dead, they're going to guard the city against the Jews that are going to come in, from the, Jesus coming in and taking his throne. And so right there you have the Dome of the Rock with the, the gold top on it. Just to give you some, some context, um, that is a Muslim mosque now because the temple was torn down. The temple used to exist in that spot. And so I want to show you a second picture to give you an idea of that this is what the temple looked like at the time of Jesus. So it's the same walls around uh, the Temple Mount. The southern steps are over here, but then you've got this temple. And so as we reference this this morning, as we talk about where Jesus is at with his disciples as he's having this discussion, what they're looking at, what's the setting that they're looking on, they're looking over Jerusalem, this is what they're seeing. And, and then also the numerous references to the temple, just so you know, this is the temple that, that they're referencing that no longer exists uh, at this point. And so thanks for putting those pictures up. So I wanted you guys to give you a little bit of context this morning. So I want to slowly read through Matthew 24. Uh, we're going to read through verses 1 through 31, and I'm going to go through it slowly. It's a ton. I understand that, but I want you guys to open up your Bibles. I want you to read on the screen. I want you to be engaged in this this morning because I want you to take it in. I want you to hear it all. I want you to understand it all. And so, again, it's not all going to happen this morning, but what I'm hoping is that you catch some of it this morning, that it perks your interest, that you go back to the Word tonight and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and continue to flesh it out for yourself. So this is what it says. Chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the, where we were just showing that picture from, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the, the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. 
such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And those days, if, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of, the man, son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Amen? And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from, all, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So, long passage. And I'm sure you read through this text and you have all these questions, right? The main question, probably which is, um, what is this all about? What, what does this mean? And even if we could figure it out, what these events mean, when they will happen, um, we still have questions. What about the phrase abomination of desolation? Like, what in the world does that mean? Can I ask somebody to turn the lights back on, please? So I'm going to try to answer these uh, three questions this morning, and I'm not going to dwell in, in many of the fine details of this passage, but I just want to be able to give you clarity this morning as to what these events might be, when these events might take place, how we can make sense of the abomination of desolation, and so how do we make sense of this passage? Has, has anybody read through this, like spent time digging through these passages? Anybody? A handful of you. And so I, I sort of look at this passage, this, this section of scripture is Look at it like a jigsaw puzzle. Like, how do you normally start a jigsaw puzzle when you're going to do a puzzle? You start with the easiest pieces, right? The ones that are easiest to figure out. Normally, you start with the top left corner. Anybody start with the middle of a puzzle when you do it? Not really. Like, you start with the top left corner. You work your, you, you work your way around the edges. You get the easy pieces in. And then after you're able to get the edges filled out, what do you do? You start taking the bigger chunks in the middle of the puzzle and trying to figure those out because those are easy to identify. And then you start filling in the gaps with everything else that's around it. Same with Matthew 24. So the easiest corner to start with, I think, is the first couple verses, right? Because they frame the rest of this passage for us. And so Jesus is leaving the temple. His disciples come to him and they point out how amazing this temple structure is. I mean, you saw that picture. What an amazing architectural feat. Like, what an amazing structure it was. And so the disciples are pointing out to him how amazing the temple structure was. And Jesus says, you see all these, do you not? Like, you see how amazing, like, you see all these buildings. Truly, I say to you, he says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus is saying, the temple's going to be destroyed. Like, this thing's going down. Literally, it's going to be taken down to the ground. Not one stone upon another will be left. And then the disciples said, all right, we get that. But Jesus, when will this happen? 
Tell us when this will happen. And, and by the way, what will be the sign of, of your coming at the end of the age? And so the disciples, interestingly enough, link the destruction of the temple to his second coming. Like, for some reason in their minds, they're like, when's the temple coming down? And what are the signs of your coming, of the end of the age? So they ask him, when will this happen? What are the signs? So you might wonder, like, what in the world is this connection that the disciples are making? But if you remember back to Matthew 23, at the end of that chapter, verse 38, Jesus said that because of their rebellion, that their house would be left desolate. It was what Jesus said. And I think this has reference to the city of Jerusalem, to the, the, the people, the, uh, the Israelites, um, also to the temple of God itself. And so the temple will be destroyed and their worship will be left desolate. But Jesus also said in verse 39 of, of 20, chapter 23 before this, right after that, that he will return, right? For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which means there will come a day when you will recognize him for who he actually is. One day he will come back. And so there's this connection that you see being developed. The city, the temple being destroyed, and then verse 39, him coming back. And so you can sort of understand why the disciples would frame the questions that they did back to Jesus in tandem. When the temple uh, when will the temple be destroyed and when will you return? Because they're sort of thinking that these things go together in their minds. Like if the temple doesn't exist anymore, I mean, listen, for, for, for a Jewish person, if the temple doesn't exist before, then where is God? And, and if Jesus says that he is God and there's a, there's a time coming when the temple's gone and, and God's out and Jesus is no longer with them, then, then where is God in that season? So in their minds, they're thinking, temple down, Jesus has to come back. He, the Messiah has to return at that point because otherwise, where is God? And I think that Jesus' response to them is sort of a shock because I think in their heads, they're thinking that the temple will be destroyed. Jesus will come back really quickly after that. But Jesus says, yes, the temple will be destroyed and yes, I will return. And he says, the Son of Man will be coming on the clouds of glory. But before that happens, there's all this other stuff, right? There's a ton of other things that have to take place. And so there's this assurance to them that he will come back, but not before these hard things happen that Jesus tells them about first. And so I want you to look at these in chunks this morning. We're just going to look at this passage in sections, and we're not going to get into every single verse um, but I want to look at sort of the broad strokes. So the first big chunk from what Jesus said uh, to the time he would return is this reference to these birth pains, the beginning of birth pains. And I want you to highlight these sections in your Bible. I, I, for me, it helps me make sense of this passage. So there's this beginning of birth pains. Um, I don't think that Bible reading is super complicated we just need to sort of be able to see the themes and make understanding of it. And, and Jesus is answering two questions. Again, when is the temple being destroyed? What are the signs of the coming? And so the first chunk is the beginning of birth pains. The second chunk, he talks about tribulation. And then the third significant chunk is this reference to the abomination of desolation. And when that happens, it triggers this next phase, which is the great tribulation. And then we end up seeing these cosmic signs, right? The sun will be darkened, and the moon won't give light, and the stars fall from the heavens. And these are the things 
that will happen like in the sky, in the atmosphere up above, like this, before the Son of Man returns. And so you look at this first chunk, the, the beginning of birth pains. So in verses 4 through 8, we see Jesus expanding on this, like the, the beginning, what are the beginning of birth pains? And what is Jesus saying this season will be characterized by? And the fact that he, mainly what he says it will be characterized by is the fact that many will be led astray, that there will be a lot of false teachers, and they'll lead many away from Christ, that there will be wars, and there will be rumors of wars, and so it will be this time of unrest and panic and, and, and turmoil. Like, if you think COVID-19 was bad, I think this is worse. Because we also see him mention famines and earthquakes, and then in Luke 21, he mentions pestilences, right? And so this is the first phase of these beginning of birth pains. Are you guys tracking with me this morning? I know this is, no, you're not. Okay. Um, so what does Jesus say about this time? Like, see to it, get this, that you're not alarmed. That's what Jesus said. See to it that you're not alarmed by this. This has to take place, but this isn't the end. Don't be alarmed by it. The second section he talks about is he, is he gets into this first mention of tribulation. And in tribulation, like God's people will be delivered to die, is what he says. They will be put to death. Again, the same thing we see in the beginning of birth pains continues on in, into the tribulation where there are many false prophets. This will be a time where it says lawlessness increases, which is a state of disorder due to a disregard for the law. And as a result of this, this is the heartbreaking part. What's it say? That the love of many will grow cold. Here's the upper, though. Is that ironically enough, it's also a time where the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Like there's something about God being on the move in the midst of all of this, and that's this tribulation. The third thing he mentions is this abomination of desolation which was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and Jesus is referencing the Old Testament, this Old Testament prophecy here that Daniel mentions three times. He talks about it in Daniel 9, and Daniel 11, and Daniel 12, and, and we'll get back to this in a minute, but this abomination of desolation that's established triggers this next thing, which then is this great tribulation that he talks about. And you can read all the details about how horrible this is. And so Jesus says that those in Judea should flee to the mountains, that you need to escape and don't come back because there's going to be false Christs and false prophets and they'll actually perform signs and wonders and they'll lead people astray because they will think that he is, they are the Christ. But the primary characteristic of this season is he says that it's a time such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. A time nobody's seen. Like, there's never been a time like this. And so this is a time, like, of unparalleled misery and pain and death and suffering. It's why it's called the Great Tribulation. And then after this, you, you, you see these cosmic signs, right? The, the moon is dark and the stars fall out of the sky. sky. And then you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in great glory. And so I, I'm going to try my best to use a whiteboard this morning because if you're visual like me, kind of mapping these things out helps it make a little bit more sense. Um, but I just want to help you piece together a little bit of what Jesus is saying. So Jesus is giving this message. He's talking to the disciples somewhere around like, well, first of all, what's he talking about? They're talking about end times, right? 
end times. This is all happening somewhere around like 32, 33 A.D., And Jesus says that there's a series of things that should happen. So he says, the, this first thing, he says that there's these, these birth pains, right? These birth pains. And then after the birth pains is what? There's this tribulation that happens. And then after this tribulation, he goes on to say that there's this uh, abomination of desolation that happens. And then after this abomination of de- desolation, there's this great tribulation. And then after this great tribulation, There's these cosmic signs. And then after this, we see the second coming. And so this is kind of, if you walk through Matthew 24, this is kind of how Jesus maps out. One thing leads to another is is how he's kind of sharing it. So you kind of get this rough sequence of events that are laid out. Um, I'm sure, I hope many of us in this room would agree that the second coming is an event that has not taken place yet, right? Right? Would we agree? Has anybody seen Jesus come back that I'm not aware of? Most of us have not. Um, So we know that this is somewhere in the future, right? That the second coming of Jesus is is yet to come. The question then is, like, when do these things actually happen? When do they take place? And and I think this helped me formulate this this sort of jigsaw puzzle in my mind a bit. So I want to start the puzzle of sorts by looking at one of the events that's described in this passage a little bit more in detail, this abomination of desolation. So what's an abomination of desolation? Anybody ever heard that word before? Besides it it sounding really cool, it'd be good in a rap song, right? But the abomination of desolation, this word abomination in the Greek and the Hebrew means detestable, it means ugly, it means hideous, it means horrific. That's the idea of this abomination. Something so bad, something so detestable, so gnarly. So what's the abomination? The abomination is something hated by God. It's something so gnarly, so detestable, that God hates it. But what is this abomination of desolation? So you look at this next word, desolation. This word desolation simply means destruction. It means Ruin, And so apparently there's this event that happens that, that's something so horrific, something like so detestable that it will actually cause total destruction. And the interesting part is that, that this abomination of desolation is spoken of by the prophet Daniel, right? And you can go sort of immerse yourselves, and I challenge you guys to do so. In Daniel 9, 11, and 12, go read through that. Get some information about this abomination of desolation. But in Matthew We also see that Jesus narrows it down a bit because he tells us that the abomination of desolation will take place where? He says in the holy place is where this happens. Like in the temple in Jerusalem, that picture I just showed you, that's where it happens. So one of the things we can understand then is that for the end times to come, like someone is going to do something absolutely so detestable that it will bring destruction to the temple of God. But the question is then, like, when does this happen? And this is where theologians historically have been all over the map on this. Like, they have tons of differing views. And it's kind of where this whole section gets really confusing, if you ask me. Um, There are many theologians today and theologians in the past uh, that people that I would even 
highly, highly respect that would hold this perspective that the abomination of desolation already happened sometime in the past, that it's already taken place. And most would say that it was in 70 AD when, when Jerusalem was destroyed, when the temple was torn down at the siege of Jerusalem. So two years prior to 70 AD, when there's the siege of Jerusalem, Israel wanted to revolt against the Roman Empire. And so this general, Titus, Titus Vespasian, um, is sent by Caesar to lead these Roman troops to go destroy Jerusalem, to literally take the thing down. Because Caesar wanted to teach them a lesson about trying to rebel against the Roman Empire. And so the siege was so long. Like you go read Josephus' account of this siege. It was so long that there was no food left. Like people were famished. They hadn't eaten. They were starving to death. And the historian Josephus goes on to say that mothers were so desperate that they literally were killing their infants and eating them in order to survive during the season. Crazy. That's how insanely bad this was in 70 AD. Like it was so severe that a million Jews died in the siege of Jerusalem. Like if you go to Jerusalem today, you can still see the temple stones overturned and in shambles. It's unbelievable. You can walk around the walls and see where everything fell over and it's still sitting in the same place, like brick by brick. It was all torn down. You can literally see it with your own eyes. And so people look at AD 70 when Rome invades Jerusalem and destroys it and tears it down and tears down the temple. And some believe that this abomination of desolation was committed by, uh, by this Roman general Titus. And if you go to Rome today, you can actually see this arc, this arch at Rome that, that memorialized the siege of Jerusalem. And so some believe that Titus was the abomination of desolation, that this has already happened. There are people way more studied than I am who have varying views on this. And so the question is, like, can we actually be certain that Titus was that? Because there are tons of well-respected theologians that would say, yes, he was. And this is why this gets so hairy and so difficult, because it might be this or it might be that. And so some say um, it, it's not Titus, but then if it's not Titus, uh, then it's referring to somebody else in the future that, that we would maybe refer to as the Antichrist. Right? So in John, 1 John 2, 18, it says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour, or the last days. And so John's saying that there are many Antichrists that, 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 are, that um, have already come. Actually, there are many false prophets and teachers even in the world today. And not everyone who calls themselves a preacher or a pastor is sent by God. Like, I think we're smart enough to know that, right? That there are literally wolves in sheep's clothing that come to lead the church astray. And so John is saying that there are many antichrists, but you've heard that the antichrist, this one, is coming. And so he's saying that there's someone who's going to actually oppose Jesus, somebody who's going to pretend to be Christ, somebody that will want to usurp the place of Jesus, and this man is coming. He's called the Antichrist. And so I personally don't necessarily ascribe to the idea that Titus was the abomination of, of desolation. Um, and it's interesting that the, the temple's destroyed in 70 AD. The book of 1 John, where this is written, is actually written in 
95 AD, like 25 years later. Um, so it, it doesn't totally make sense. But there's a ton of variations on this view. And essentially this view would believe that we need to link all these events that Jesus speaks of in AD 70, that they, they all need to happen because we know that this one hasn't happened, right? Some of you thought it did, right? But, but this one hasn't happened. But if you ascribe to this perspective, then it seems like all these other things are linked together and all these other things would have had to have happened if that abomination of desolation was in 70 AD and was, in fact, um, Titus. So, it's also interesting if you know that it's like the, the siege of Jerusalem like, killed a, mil, uh, a million Jews. It was terrible. How many people, anybody here know how many people died in the final solution under Hitler's regime? Six million. Six million. Now, it doesn't seem to me like the abomination of desolation in 70 AD necessarily fits that the never will be statement that Jesus makes there. And so this view also means that you'd read verse 29 immediately after the tribulation, that there would be cosmic signs, that there will be an entire darkening and so on, and that you'd have to believe that this has already happened. My personal opinion, as of now, but you can ask me another five years, because I feel like it's constantly changing on this whole thing. But my personal opinion would be that this abomination of desolation that's being referred to most likely points to some sort of future event. And so some people say even that the beginning of birth pains is already now. But then you basically have to believe that for the last 2,000 years, the world's been experiencing birth pains. I don't know about you, my wife had a long labor, 36 hours. But that's still pretty short in the grand scheme of things, right? 2,000 years of birth pains seems like a very long time to me. So regardless, some think that we're living in this age of the birth pains. Again, my opinion, maybe not. Um, now, this is all somewhere in the future. But then we read about this tribulation where, where there will be an intense persecution of believers. And this word, the word is clear that tribulation is literally about the persecution. It's about the tribulation of Christians. Like, they, he goes on to say, like, you, that, that they will deliver you up to tribulation, that you will be hated by all nations, that, that they won't hate one another, they will hate you, and, and there'll be many false prophets, many will fall away because of the intense persecution, that the hypocrites, the, the false prophesying people or professing people in the church, they'll give up, just like Jesus talked about in the parable of the four soils, right? That there will be those that seem to grow well, but then when the sun rises, they wither and they die. And so during these seasons of tribulation, there will be great lawlessness in the world that says that many will have their hearts grow cold. However, then Jesus says during the season, there will also be a time where the gospel is proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Like God is on the move in the season like never before in history. Please understand this. This is a great time for the believer because God's moving. And then you see that this abomination of desolation, and I think this refers to this Antichrist coming to the temple, setting himself up as this image of worship um, that trigger, triggers then this great tribulation that is, he references where there's unparalleled death and suffering and pain and all these things. And then following that are these signs, these cosmic signs 
Um, and, and then the, the world, if you can imagine, will be in darkness. There will be no sun. There will be no moon, no stars. And then in that context, like in that backdrop, comes this, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great gl- glory. Like, but here's the sticky passage. As you get into verse 34, and he says, Truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so here's the hang-up for this whole thing. What is this generation? Is Jesus literally talking to the people sitting, his disciples sitting right there with him now? Or is he referring to something in the future because it sounds like he's talking to the people that are right before him? And so there's many that that would say that this can't refer to something in the future because this generation meant the disciples that he's with generation that they would have to see the fulfillment of the birth pains, the tribulation, the abomination, the great tribulation, and so on. And so they feel, many feel, that it has to be Titus. But there's another way to also look at this phrase, this text, that doesn't have to force that kind of an interpretation of this generation. Because it's likely that this generation is a reference to a type or a kind of people. So often in the book of Psalms, Um, you see this generation, that phrase used to reference a group of people. In the Psalms, it actually refers to the wicked, right? They're referred to as this generation. But it's also likely that when Jesus said this, he was simply referring to the generation that would see this happen, that generation. And so my, my goal this morning is simply share what these events are, a loose timeline, because you have to come back to the questions that, you, that they were asking Jesus. Like, you have to come back to what he was addressing. When will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? And it seems as if Jesus did not quite tell them when the temple was destroyed. Like, we know it goes down in 70 AD, but Jesus actually answers one more question. What will the signs of your coming and the end of the age be? And, he said, and then Jesus says, like, I will come back. I'll come back. One commentator I was reading said this. He said, a wise preacher dealing with this passage may find particular value in focusing on this point. Listen to this. That when Jesus gives instruction concerning future events, his purpose is not to satiate our curiosity or answer all of our speculative questions. Instead, hear this, his purpose is to protect and guide and instruct his people. Jesus gave relatively little attention to the question when and much towards the question, how shall we live faithfully now? Preaching on such text today should be shaped by Jesus' concern for the welfare and endurance of his church. What a cool statement. So I know that this is sort of a broad framework on this passage, but I know that there's a mixed group of people in this room, honestly. Um, There's some of you that have never heard any of this before. There's some of you in this room that have heard this and studied it, have your own opinions. And then there's some of you that only know what you've been told to believe. Like whether that be pastors, friends, uh, whether that be uh, movies you've watched, books you've read. And my hope for you is really that you would become a student and start reading the word for yourself. Like honestly, just in the last two weeks as I've been digging into this, like I I can sense my own heart being stirred. And being stirred in the sense of like, we always look at end times as something we have to fear and something we don't want to see happen. When actually Jesus is saying there's a lot of good that comes through that. Like it literally ushers in his second coming. 
The church is literally more alive and more vibrant in this season than it ever has been in history. There's literally prophets and people of old that longed to see those days and never got to experience them. And this is why Jesus gave his word to us, church, so that we can use it as a form of protection, that we can use it as a form of direction, that we can use it as a form of correction in our life. But if we never get to know God through his word, how in the world will you be prepared? How in the world will you know what these signs and these seasons are? Not just for the end of days, but for this life now. Do you guys believe that Everything in the Bible is applicable for us now, now, today. Like it's, it's to help you withstand your life now, to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, to live as a follower of Christ. And it seems ironic, like given the circumstances in the world that we land on this passage right now, but the world seems to be like being destroyed by, before our very eyes, like the whole thing's shaking down. But might I remind you that it's so easy for us to get caught up with COVID and politics and world affairs and news, but in this story, in this teaching, in this particular text, I can't think of anything else but to be stunned and, and to be like affirmed in how God is in perfect control of everything, is he not? That, that nothing is out of God's hands, right? Nothing is out of God's timeline. Everything is as he planned it to be. And so the circumstances in this world are huge, maybe more than some of us have ever seen in our lifetime. But might I remind you this morning that God is bigger, amen, than all of these circumstances, that he's so big that there's nothing that could confound him. And so as a people, I pray that in this season, we wouldn't be a news-centered people, but a gospel-centered people. Right, that, that we will not be fear-based, but that we would be hope-fixed, I hope. <laughs> and there's this great hope in the gospel that rings loud and clear in verses 30 and 31, that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other, and the great hope is that Jesus is coming again, is it not? That's our hope. It's actually our only hope, to be honest with you. It's the only thing that we can attach ourselves. It's the only thing that we can be anchored to. And whether you think this tribulation has happened, whether you think the tribulation is going to happen, the fact remains, no matter what, that at the end of time, at the end of this age, Jesus is definitely coming again. And that's our blessed hope. And so even if I should die in this life, even if we should suffer, even if we should die, what loss is there if we know that at the end of the day, we'll be ushered into glory? <laughs> and so take all the necessary precautions you need to in your life. Like, be prepared. But church, don't be stricken by fear. There's literally nothing to fear. And it's my prayer that in this season, that the gospel really main, remains central to our hearts and to our lives. It's the thing we hold on to. Like, we spend way too much time focusing on the doom and gloom side of the end of days, I think. 
Like, think about every apocalyptic movie that you've ever seen. What happens? It's dark. There's nobody around. There's zombies running around everywhere. It just is gloomy. You're like, ah, wah, wah, you know, and then we're, in our minds, we're like, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be super apocalyptic, and everything is going to suck, and I really hope I don't have to live to see those days. But we're this hope-filled people. We aren't doom and gloom, church. We're actually anticipatory about what happens next. We should be. Like, we view every day, like every breath as God's grace to give us one more day to, to allow us to have his light and his hope and his peace and his love and his joy to shine through us into the doom and gloom, don't we? That, that's, that's what I hope the church looks like. Like, that we're literally pointing people to a better way. And so as you, like, spend some time, and I hope you do in this next week, devouring the word, digging in. Go read through Matthew 24 and 25. Go read through Daniel. Go do that research for yourself. But at the end of the day, may you not fall into the trap of believing that everything just sucks and you don't want to see that day because actually I feel a lot of excitement in my heart about the fact that the church that actually is alive for that time will see things that we never will. What an amazing time that God is on the move. And do we live every single day right now as though it's our last? That do we believe that Jesus could return at any time? Like he can. And yet so many Christians are living their lives like this. Twiddling their thumbs. Getting caught up in their life. Allowing the news and the world events to wreak havoc in our hearts allowing fear to overcome us, allowing us to be this paralyzed, sort of immobile church that somehow doesn't believe that God is on the move and sustaining us in the midst of these season, this season, and even more so, he's going to do that for the church into the future, into his coming. Do you feel excited about this? Do you feel anticipatory about the fact that Jesus is coming back for us? Yeah, amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I, Would you guys stand with me? We're going to blow a trumpet real quick. No, I'm just kidding. Uh. <laughs> a shofar. I really hope you guys know how much Jesus loves each and every one of you. Like, there's a massive story unfolding that, by God's grace, you've been invited into. You're not the crux of it. <laughs> he is. But you've been invited into it. And I do think it's such a time as this, whether we will see this, the return of Jesus or not in our lifetime, I do believe that we live as though we are. that our hearts are bent towards the hope that exists in knowing he will return, that the dead will be raised in Christ, that we will spend eternity with Jesus. 
And so no matter what you're going through in your life right now, like might you be reminded this morning that it might seem bad and it may seem difficult to wade through. But may your heart not be attached to that circumstance but be anchored in eternity. May it be anchored to Christ. May you find hope in the fact that he will come back for you, that he will relieve you of every pain, every situation in your life that has caused hurt he will deliver you from that one day. And as we live through this life, like may we live in such a way that we see every person we come into contact with as a tremendous grace from the living God to have interaction with them, to lead them into eternity as well. Amen? Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for your word. I thank you, uh, Jesus, for the excitement that exists in us knowing that you're coming back for us. Thank you, Jesus, that by your spirit, even as we're in this season where we live in between your death and your resurrection and your second coming, we live in this season where it's your spirit that sustains us, your spirit that resides within us, Jesus. And so I pray for us, God, that we be reminded that we're not alone, that you're actually with us, that your spirit is sustaining us, that your spirit is leading us, that there are droves and droves of people around us on a regular basis that do not have this hope, whose lives are literally being sucked away by the doom and gloom of the circumstances of this world. And I pray, Jesus, that we would be the church that invites them into eternity to understand the hope and the glory that only comes through you, Jesus. And so I pray for your empowering upon your church, and I pray as we leave these doors this afternoon that there be an excitement and an anticipation that exists within us, a stirring in our hearts, Jesus, of what's next and what it is we get to be part of. And Jesus, I pray that your church would come alive, Lord, that we get serious about this walking with you and not stand back and twiddle our thumbs and just assume that our life is our life and then one day it'll be gone. We'll go spend eternity with you, but that you have purpose and value and meaning for each and every life in this room, each and every day that they're given on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.